0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 401. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Molly Kellogg. Molly is the president and CEO of Hubbard Hall, a specialty chemicals business that was founded in 1849. As the sixth generation head of the family business, Molly Kellogg is shepherding Hubbard Hall through change not least of which has been the challenges of this pandemic. In this conversation with Molly, we discuss her leadership style, how she has led the company through a transformational journey, lessons learned, and how and why purpose has been an important part of their success, as well as how ice hockey has played an important part in Molly's life. You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review. and Don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Molly Kellogg, my goodness, how fun is it to have a old time friend? We went to business school together, we played grass hockey together memorably, and um, you are currently uh, four and a half thousand titled head of Hubbard Hall. In your own words, how would you like to describe yourself, Molly?
1: that's a challenging challenging question from from the outset i think i if i think about my role as leader of the company i think uh skills that i bring to i think i'm creative i think i'm um forward thinking and still bound by an incredible tradition in our company so we go back 179 years and uh, congratulations yeah thank you and that was a lot of a lot of luck i think if i look back and and good financial stewardship but um, so as I think about what I do, I'm bound by this incredible tradition. It's also a great gift and a legacy. So I'm trying to build the business. Um, as I think about what I'm trying to do, it's not to build it up and have one of those liquidity moments or hit a number, but trying to build it for generation number seven. Um, and so how I t- take a, an old fashioned business and think about executing to build something sustainable and that. You know the best sense of the word not the um more popular sense of the word so this business is here for generation number seven and then also um giving back to the communities that we operate in so it's a lesson that i learned at my father's uh, on the other side of the conference room table over 25 years of working with him
0: that's beautiful and of course you um are a mother of four you are also a rabid and very good ice hockey player Uh, multi-talented. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, Molly, as we get into this is, so you're the CEO and chairman, uh, chairperson, I should say, of Hubbard Hall. We both went to business school in Fontainebleau a few years back. What did that, what has that, if it did, bring to you in your job as the head of Hubbard Hall?
1: Uh, I'd say in some ways, mentor brought me everything. And from a... Character development point of view is it, it was the hardest I've ever had to work um, coming from as a comparative literature major, <laughs> not having like done um, a lick of math since probably freshman year in high school. You know, I actually failed the like the math section of the uh, whatever we took the GMAT.
0: The GMAT, yeah.
1: The GMAT, right? So I was incredibly intimidated coming into that and had to work so hard just to keep up a little bit. Um, so that you know as a competitive person, that gave me a little bit of extra, I think, resiliency and grit. And then from a pure MBA point of view, it gave me the toolbox, right? I may not remember how to do Black Shell's option pricing model, but I know it's out there. It you <laughs> know it exists. More than I remember. Yeah. And then, you know, the other really, really special part about INSEAD was being able to live with and experience life for a year with people from all over the all over the world and you know doing that that work in the groups that was so um important and i don't know it's just if i look back at my life that's that's a top five year really so
0: that's lovely to hear and sixth generation so uh, there are a lot of things that really crop up with that thought first of all not so many companies survive four generations statistics bear that out as you get you know, down to the sixth generation like you, you've lost your hunger. It's sort of spoon fed. You've probably got a silver spoon, you know, stuck up somewhere kind right, of thing yeah. feeling. And and how do you do it? So on top of that, um, you're in a business that I can't imagine is hugely female. Um, from certainly from my understanding of industry and chemicals and specialty chemicals. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty, but uh, is, how is that? Is that, is that a, a novelty, so to speak? And how has it been for you? Does that have any bearing on your existence as the CEO?
1: Um, I think currently has no bearing on my existence as CEO, right? So once, so I'd say not currently, but in, in terms of my professional development, what I've been able to do with the company it has helped being female for two reasons. I think one is sometimes I'm the only female in the room, so people just remember me, right? So then if I want to go back out and make connections, I don't have to explain, right, who I am. And then, you know, I think growing up in our generation, our age mentor, um, I was also underestimated at times. Um, and so I would maybe learn things or, um, I would sort of learn learn things people would say things to me that perhaps they thought I didn't understand and so it was a real competitive advantage well, for me.
0: because you're blonde you know
1: that's yeah. it right and I've gotten blonder over the years I don't know how that's happened but it's, it's an amazing part of aging
0: well I, I want to layer in on that a second because I, I, I university I studied like you uh, comparative literature yeah. uh, but my minor was women's studies yeah. and one of my observations has been you ask a man to do something who's never done it before. He says, yeah, 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 I can do it. Yeah. You ask a woman who's done it five times before, well, I'm not sure I can do it.
1: Yeah.
0: You go to a business school, oh, I've got to compete more because, you know, who am I to to do it in that rank? Do you feel that there was any of that in your existence and and how you had to prove yourself and make yourself more or stronger as a leader?
1: Um, yeah, probably. Although I didn't pay a lot of attention to a min- mentor because I think being a you know competitive athlete is just put your head down and go forward. So I never saw... Um, I never felt like I was competing against men. I was probably more competing against myself. Um, mm. And I saw more of the advantages of being a female than not. And maybe there's some that just sort of went by me I never paid attention to. Um, so... So I, I don't know, but you know, it's funny that the women's studies thing, I was—I saw a great example of the male, male approach to life and female approach to life with my children. So three girls go through driver's ed here in the States, right? You've got to go out you got to drive with your parent. They come in, they say that, oh my gosh, it was terrible. So much to work on. And they were fine. My son, the youngest of four, goes out to drive with me the first time. And I mean, three times I'm grabbing the wheel, he hit a curb, nearly hit a cop, walks in the door and says, that was flawless. (laughs) 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 like, no, it wasn't. But that female, like that doubt, right? That self like, oh my gosh, I don't really know how to do it male approach oh, i'm really pretty good you know um so it's funny it's extra-
0: to- it is extraordinary and you you know you still have to wonder if it's uh, inculcated or or let's say natural i i'm i, I think the jury feels out on that right. but overall there does seem to be a reality that which in my mind leads me to say well that's good that we're different because right. it's that complementarity that difference of perspectives the sometimes the bravery sometimes the intelligent and analysis and and let's say more conservative double thinking about something that is a useful you know to and fro
1: right i I agree and the other thing i think about so yes we've got celebrate the differences and that's fine and it's good um one danger that or you know a gap that i see myself falling into so this male assumption of authority uh, and the female maybe a bit more passive role. And so when I'm listening to people speak and in our company, and you think I'd be highly tuned to this as a woman, but you know, the men tend to speak like radio announcers and very confident. And so I can be, if I'm not careful, swayed by the tone of their voice rather than actually what they're saying. And the, the women who tend to be a little bit more apologetic and, and laugh when they're speaking, i may more readily dismiss what they're saying so this mm. the difference between i've heard it described is you know confidence versus competence right men mm. come across as confident and that becomes a heuristic for competence and it's not mm. advice and yeah. so it's
0: fascinating because i mean at the end of the day the, the, we are still also a we're trained we come up with experiences and we also have stresses like time yeah. and and you know someone's speaking and then you need to be able to allocate airtime when right. someone doesn't want to speak up. And how do you encourage right. speaking up when they feel timid or they don't feel empowered or right. whatever it is, despite the fact that you're at the head of the table? Right. It, it, it can still happen. And, and you know, as a white male in a position of leadership, I, I recall men or women who were timid having to notice that. Yeah. And then, hey, listen. Let's go around the table and and get everybody engaged and participating.
1: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, as a female leader, one of the natural talents, if you will, that I brought to it was was perhaps being more empathetic and mm. attuned to others. And so it naturally comes to me um, to to listen and to go around the table and um, you know see, seek out what I'm not hearing. And the other thing that I've sort of found interesting in this pandemic time, right? So you read an article about from McKinsey saying, the trick to leadership is authenticity. And it just cracks me up because I feel like that's, I mean, that's how I, I feel like I've always been as a leader. I think that's a very female trait that you have to tell men to be authentic and that's how you're going to be a leader. It's like, come on, <laughs> really? I mean, why is that a headline in any business article at all? Yeah, isn't, that, isn't
0: that a beautiful uh, statement, Molly? So you guys are are privately held. Give us, if you can, what you're allowed to, uh, to give us a little bit of a feeling of your business size and uh, ownership structure, because I I, I know you're family held, but I'm sure there may be other people who have a stock or two.
1: Yeah, so we are, we just, as I said, finished our fiscal year in October, about slightly over 50 million we did in revenue. Um, I, and actually, contrary to everything I learned at business school, I pay no attention to the revenue line. I look only at gross profit. So all of our KPIs, and not even—I mean, operating profit certainly—but top line, all our targets are um, GP-driven. That's what we—that's what we track to. Um, and we earn healthy profit as a C corp. Um, I was until my father died a year ago. I was a minority shareholder, and now. You know, four months ago we became I'm majority ownership. We just got certified as a woman-owned business, so that is, I've been trying to think how to look at that um, as an attribute of the business and compete perhaps differently. Uh, but yeah, so I'm I'm clearly majority owner. Got some siblings in the business, and then some minority shareholders. I was just typing up before I got on with you, mentor, a resolution to buy back some of the minority shares because of the you know, the valuation we got from my father's estate, we've got the cash to do that. So um, what I learned in the, in, you know, the success in the business going from generation to generation is that ownership was very concentrated. So easy, you know, three or a hundred years ago, it just went to the son, <laughs> the daughter's yeah. uh, more com- And then a bunch of men died in one generation. So at any rate, I think that was one of the keys to the success in transitioning the business. You didn't have, 35 shareholders in generation five. We just were very, very narrowly held. So
0: Yes. I wanted to look at that because success over time and flexibility within seems to be very much in relationship to, A, the ownership structure and the governance put in place. Yeah. And, and I was wondering just if you wanted to comment that to what extent, I mean, outside of your own talents and so on, obviously, but to see just how how has that contributed? And then, you know, what what do you have to say about going public? You know, if, if someone came here, here's a big pot of gold, go public, you know, what what advice would you give to others who have that being proffered out?
1: Yeah, you know what? I can't imagine that. I can't imagine saying yes to that because I don't get up in the morning um, thinking about how I'm going to make more money. I don't, and, and again, so I've reached a certain point in my career and I'm, I'm financially fine, right? Um, but I never wake up thinking, hey, how much money can I make today? Can I sell the company? Um, when I was in a CEO networking group, everybody would talk about, you know, the, the, the sheer goal was always to double the size of the business or some purely financial goal. And it just doesn't, not only does it not get me out of bed in the morning, it doesn't give me the incredible energy you need to, to like run a business. I think about building something that, um, will, as I said, be around for the next generation should they want it. I think about building a company that, um, makes the people who work for us better. We talk about our, our, you know, why do we exist statement is to expand possibilities. And I feel that right here, (laughs) right in Mm -hmm. the heart. Um, so how do I expand possibilities for people work for workforce and in our communities? And I think it's really fun to then be working on a business that is building, building indefinitely, hopefully into the future, versus just getting to a number, and that's that was all that I did. So zero interest in, in um, going public. The governance issue, right, the, the best thing about being CEO is you can do whatever you want, right? I remember when I was transitioning from my cousin, I I called him up and I asked him, you know, can I can I do this? He said, you can do anything you want. <laughs> and there's an incredible responsibility that goes with that, but that's I think the the fun part of the job and what makes it creative and and uh, rewarding.
0: Well, I love that why expanding possibilities. It yeah. it's, it's very expansive, imaginative, and 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 encompassing because you can really bring it down to an individual who's the janitor, really, even you know that they could expand their possibilities. Up to you, to the clients, to the the way the chemicals are being used to change utilizations, and and so that's what that's the beauty, of course, of specialty chemicals, is that they they do have that strong value add in the product.
1: Right, and so here's the other um notion that I've been playing with and I threw it out to my board and there was sort of dead silence when I said this, but I want to be <laughs> I want to be the chemical company that sells you less chemicals every year that helps you use, you know, sells you fewer More chemicals less yeah. chemistry. Yeah, because again, thinking about um, expanding possibilities, thinking about building a truly sustainable business and the obligation I've got to the generations behind me, nobody wants to use our products. You know, you have to in some cases. But, um, you know, how do we help our customers use less? And that's at the end of the day, fairly self-serving, because if they're more profitable than they exist for a long time, they buy from us. So that's a pretty simple, um, simple Virtuous. equation. Mm-hmm. But we just, we're bringing out a product this year that is uh, it's used in cleaning chemistry, which is one of our biggest product lines. And it reduces cleaner consumption by 35 to 60%. Right. And I've got most of my sales team saying, I'm not going to sell this. Like, forget about it. <laughs> right? There goes my commission. But we've got customers who are spending hundreds and thousands of dollars on water that they're then pouring down the drain. So it's a recycling, um, a recycling technology that will help them use less, spend less. So then i got to figure out how to get that revenue back. But I think that's, you know, that, that's what I really want to do with the business. Help people use less chemistry. the that's chemistry. fascinating. That, that's yeah. fascinating.
0: I mean, and, and things that I had to deal with myself uh, would be aligning the incentives. Right. Because that may all be great in your mind. Your right. children may be happy. The grandchildren are happier yet, but the salesperson said, well, you know, that's my volume. And, 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 uh, and so getting them on board, how much does the purpose have a purpose in that discussion can you go to the guy or the woman and say listen i know this is going to drop your commission by but you know listen we're here expanding possibilities <laughs> <laughs> they're like yeah but not my pocketbook
1: yeah exactly. Yeah. not not their possibilities right so half my half my uh charges expand their possibilities so i think yeah they're they no one is going to be running behind you if you're saying oh by the way you're gonna earn less right so i'll be i'll be tilting at that windmill and uh, my army will be back at the hotel. Um, but what we've been in the process, even before the pandemic, but this notion of a sales transformation and changing how we um, engage with the customer, changing how we compensate the sales team, that, that notion of commission is perhaps old-fashioned. There's a lot of um, thinking that says doesn't matter, it doesn't influence behavior. But there's a book called The Machine uh, by Justin Roth uh, somebody that really, changed
0: I'll, I'll put it in the, I'll find it for the show notes.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really good. And we haven't gone to his extreme model, but um, taken a lot of what he advocates to heart. Um, but you know what, if we, for the longer term, if we don't, if we don't do this, we don't help our customers, somebody else will. And then I think increasingly the people who do resonate with the why, so the, the generation that's coming up, they need a purpose. They need a why. They need something, more than going out and selling another drum of caustic soda. So I think over time, people who come work at our company and stay at our company be those who are who buy into that notion of expanding possibility, selling less chemistry, developing products that maybe use less um, water, heat, or whatever it may be. Yeah.
0: So going to back to the governance question, Molly, hmm. you're a majority shareholder, owner, you're running, you know, chairman, CEO, how, how do you favor or allow for dissent? Molly, you're full of shit. That's the wrong thing. Get over it. Bad. Right. How, how does that happen? How do you allow for it? Do you allow for it? And, and just where do you want to go? Because otherwise it could sound like uh, insubordination.
1: Right. No, I mean, try to encourage it. And that was when I took over as CEO, that was you know, the, my first priority was culture and making sure that we had a culture of candor, right? So, forget about everything that we were doing. We need to be able to talk directly to each other, disagree, have that conflict, and move on. So, I think at an executive team level, I've got I've got plenty of naysayers, um, and and then we do you know some of the things that one does anyway. You you have a, a red team or you black hat something, but really, I, my board is um, best at asking me the really hard questions and pushing me if i haven't given them the right answer so they're a board of directors um you know largely advisory i guess in reality but i've got on my board a guy named bill fiddler who was ceo of brentag north america so world's largest chemical company he ran north america incredibly uh, knowledgeable and so you know he, he knows if what i'm saying makes sense or if it's sheer frontier gibberish and will be will be very clear in telling me so. And um, I've got an extraordinary board and they're, they're the ones who um, who push me and challenge me the most, I think.
0: So the beginning of the year, I interviewed somebody who's written a book about how to constitute a good board of governors. Hmm. Uh, he was focused more on smaller companies because at this point, you know, if you're running a $50 billion company, it's an either kind of situation, but what advice do you have? Uh, and you're know, looking in, at your board where you might see gaps and improvements, How do you constitute a good board? I mean, you have this chap, Bill, who's Bill, I think his name was, who's very knowledgeable about the industry. You obviously have to have knowledge about the industry. But how do you ensure the right type of overview? Because if everyone knows and comes from the same area, Bob.
1: No, I I think that's a good question, Andrea. And I also see over time as the board gets comfortable with one another, perhaps that. Um, edge comes off right as it would with an executive team. So I'm in the process right now of thinking I've got two board seats coming available in the spring. So what skill sets do I need beyond that? What uh, looking really for more diversity on the board? We've got plenty of women. I've got no person of color in my company that is, oh my goodness, I've got one, um, one white collar person. So I'm thinking about that. Um, but, you know, I think Take a board member who's got the right skill set. Um, what you need, and it's probably the same with the executive team. You need someone who's fearless. And, mm. and um, there's a woman who works for us. She's our vice president of HR. And I think her superpower is really that fearlessness. She doesn't need to be working at this point. She loves what she does. She will, she'll be the one who tells me I'm bullshit, Um, Because she's got nothing to lose. And that does so, help,
0: right? When right. you don't have anything to lose and, you know, you fire me, that's your problem. It's on oh. you.
1: Right, right. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think, and you know, I'll get the calls after. And you know, it's like Molly, you know, what? that was a really, really bad idea. And so you need that same approach in in the board. The challenge with the board over time is maybe they want to stay. I mean, do you, do you lose that edge, and it's hard to gauge. But um, but I think it's important to keep challenging, making sure you got the right board.
0: When you hire people uh, at your company, Molly. I don't know if how to what extent you're specifically involved in each hire, of course, but you you said at the very beginning, well, uh, uh, earlier you said that you're really involved in the culture of the company. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you've learned in the hiring process to ensure as best as possible you get the right fit? What is it that, is there a question? Is it a system? Is it just a feeling? What is it that you've learned at this point?
1: I've learned that I'm really bad at interviewing. And, <laughs> and try Delegate. And, right. You know, talking to my controller earlier, we hired somebody after like three bad hires, we finally got the person we needed who not only fit culture, but had this we're all trying to find curiosity, right? So somebody has got initiative and beyond every box you check, it's that uh and I'm so bad at finding it because I um I don't know. I just abandoned. Well, you're
0: honest. You're honest, which is such a r- refreshing quality for a CEO uh, to admit things like that. And I and I have to say I feel and please don't take it any other way than a compliment. That's a very feminine characteristic. Yeah. It's that authentic sense of being able to say I'm not good at that.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, and, you know the bravado that says of course I'm good at that. Well damn it, I have to hire. Right. I mean, I know because I felt that personally. Yeah. In, in my experience.
1: Right. I think what, once you get to a point as a CEO where you're not, where you think you're good at everything, right? Boy, should, you know, danger Will Robinson, should that robot be going off? Um, and I had an interesting experience recently where, well, so I used to basically interview anybody, not the first round of interviews, but almost anyone who came to the company, I'd, I'd be involved because it's it's not just hiring some adoption for a company our size, right? 90, 97 people. But I took a sabbatical and, October, a month off, first time I've taken four weeks off since birth of my last child 16 years ago. And we've lots of reasons to do it. And we hired, I think, three people while I was gone. So the first time that that was, I was not involved at all. We, the, the hires were fine, right? So it's a little bit of letting go. I don't think of myself as a micromanager at all, but boy, can I dive in when, when I'm not needed um, and bottleneck things. So uh, it was interesting to see how that process went without me being involved. It was a little bit faster <laughs> so far, you know, two months in the hires look good. And, and then obviously the people who the managers who are hiring felt completely, they own it. Like they own this person they hired because I had nothing to do with it, which is good. So
0: have you decided to take a step back from further hirings or are you going to, you know, oh, yeah. how, how do you, what, what are you going to take from that thought?
1: I, you know, the, the general, um, Principle is I don't need to be involved in things I don't need to be involved in, right? So that sounds really simple, but um, mm. yeah. So I've got to do a better job, particularly as I'm trying to think about growing the business. Thinking we're kind of entering acquisition mode, so there're going to be things that are going to take up my time. So I've got to stop doing things I don't need to be doing, right? Um, so I think that's that's sort of the key takeaway.
0: Cool. Um, so I want to so go you know, into another- that we
1: went through the same process on strategic planning, which I always really spent a lot of time doing in august october and i i sent my leadership team off with five questions to answer and said okay you guys do it right same idea that they instead of being my strategic plan it's theirs they own it and you know i'd say it was about 70 percent successful it came back with good stuff you know there's one rabbit hole that we're still trying to pull ourselves back out of but um but a good process
0: that's cool well it's you know there's the idea of a hundred percent successful meeting is probably an illusion
1: yeah.
0: oh there so the the last sort of zone i want to talk about is is my bally of branding marketing yeah. things yeah. like that yeah. and uh, you're you're brazen in, on your website writing about how hubbard hall is unabashedly old school mm-hmm. i i think that was lovely um we're going to talk about that in a moment but let's talk first about hubbard hall what is the importance of brand in your business and how do you describe that
1: the importance of um i think i say this succinctly mentor it's what i want people to think about when they think of hubbard hall i want them to think that you know we're a trusted partner and that we've got expertise so that our branding then around that tries to reinforce that um because with our types of chemistry people don't want to change it until they have to right so part of the branding Mm -hmm. challenge is um there's a couple different analogies right so you don't replace your windshield until it's cracked and then you're like oh my gosh call 1-800-GIANT-GLASS because they've you know you've seen those ads endlessly so the importance of branding is to create that awareness and then the specific awareness for us because again we're dealing with hazardous chemicals is These guys know what they're doing high level of expertise and we can trust them. The, the, the longevity of the business I think plays into that. A lot of marketing firms will tell you it doesn't matter how old you are, but I do think it's a quick um, signal that yeah these guys are stable. They'll be here through the next pandemic. Um, Mm. But you know, we've been spending a lot more on branding and um, I hope my sales team never listens to this. <laughs> the other thing I didn't believe is that with proper branding and with proper marketing, I never need another salesperson. And I think that particularly as buying is changing the rise of digital in that whole process, there's no, the notion of, you know, knocking on the door and saying, Hey, would you like to buy my caustic soda? is completely, it's ridiculous. And so what I want to do is, you know, for every dollar we're not spending in sales, that dollar is going to marketing, and we've taken the budget. I mean, it's almost doubled this year, I think. Looking for outside resources because we need to create that brand awareness. We need to have people find us. When they find us, we need to take them through that um, sort of the funnel, the funnel, and the lowering of the risk really, really quickly, and and then hard to do because with a brand, right? How do you talk to an engineer at Boeing in a way that is compelling and authentic and the same way you need to speak to maybe a person is running her own little plating shop up in in uh, New Hampshire so it's a challenge so <laughs> I'm welcome your advice mentor <laughs>
0: well um, you know you mentioned in on your site this notion of unabashedly old school and we believe in the shaking hands and, and old-fashionedness and i'm I'm wondering to what extent then the pandemic has somehow shifted the gun to the other shoulder, or as we say yeah. in French, and, and understood that, well, actually the old-fashioned meetings, conventions, and conferences, which can't happen, yeah. we're actually doing fine without it. Right. And has that really shifted your perception, you know, and, and do you think that's something that's sustainable then in a world where we're, we're allowed to go back on the airplane, Boeing included, right. to conferences and conventions?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's certainly shifted. I think what helped us going into the pandemic. So, you know, for six months, you couldn't have a salesperson in a car and customer, but there's a relationship and a trust we build up over many, many, many years right. that um, helped us through and shorten the conversations. But um, I sort of liken it to a marriage, right? You can only have a marriage that goes on for so long remotely and eventually you need to get together. <laughs> um, I don't know. Especially,
0: especially um, if you want kids. <laughs>
1: especially if you want kids or, you know. Um, So I guess there are other other, um, things that need to signify what it means to be old-fashioned, but again, I would go back to, as we communicate on Zoom, as we have digital meetings, um, what's unabashedly authentic or old-fashioned is having great customer service a great customer experience. Now we're going to deliver in a completely different way. We've launched chat this year. We've got our portal. We're launching e-commerce, but we're going to, our goal is to be our customer's best supplier that's top of our quality policy so that's if you call that authentic and old-fashioned mm. you know we'll stick with that but just deliver it in a completely different way
0: social media has disrupted a lot internet and so on obviously all the different technologies out there i worked in uh space for 16 years b to b to c yeah you you're in a basically a b2b b world yeah and, and and very industrial, hardcore. In your experience, Molly, from the things that you've studied, obviously you're you're, you're more invested in Hubbard Hole, But how the word trust? Mm. Do you think it is a a bigger deal in your industry in you in a B two B environment than it actually plays in a B two C or B two B to C kind of environment?
1: Um, I mean, I, it's hard to compare the two, but I think it is. It's foundational, if you will, uh, because if we are selling somebody a chemical that's going onto a airplane part that's going up in the air, right, the, the risk aversion is so high. So um, they need to trust us. They need to trust when we give them advice that uh, it's the correct advice. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's more or less important in B2C, but in our world, it's, um, I think it's where it starts and ends. And and then it goes back to the whole company, right? If they can't, people can't trust me. If people can't trust other people in the company, it's, so I don't, I don't know if it's a word that you throw around, but it's just who you are.
0: Yeah. Well, that's where the authenticity story comes in. And, and, and you kind of have to have a bad rating to help you understand when I say it is good, it's good. When I tell you it's crap, I'm afraid it is. Right. And, and, and that ability to have that honesty about yourself knowing that behind that, you're not going to get the order, which means you're not going to get the performance, which means, you know, I'm not going to get the commission. Yeah. And and how do you accept for, I've got a wobble here, as opposed to, I'm always perfect.
1: Right. Well, I think that's maybe for us, um, the upside of having a long-term view, right? We don't need to make the sale tomorrow or next year. We need to be making the sale five years from now. So um, hopefully that gives the sales team, um uh, power in front of a customer to say actually no we're not very good at this or no we can't help you right now because you know if we get it wrong we know that, that damage to our reputation and our perception of Hubbard Hall as a trustworthy company is gone. It's gone maybe in that company, that industry. Um, so again we can we can make decisions that and, and have interactions that may be suboptimal currently but but serve a longer term uh, goal.
0: But that that long term goal Molly as I understand it, has to be supported by the governance and family ownership structure, yes. because other specialty commodity companies that are beholden to Wall Street don't quite have that same luxury.
1: No, no, that's true. So we can't, you know, we can't um, be profitless. <laughs> and we need to, we need to, um, you know, take the monies that we earn and invest them back in the business. And so we are competing against Pure, I mean, in our realm, it's not so much the public companies, but the private equity companies. And we know when one is getting ready to be sold because all of a sudden margins get, they go down the toilet and, you know, things go to hell. But um, we keep our head down and, and choose those more specialty areas. And then um, then it's much harder to, to displace us. Not that it's impossible and um, we'd be silly to think that we can't be replaced, but um, we you know, I, I have very little interest in selling truckloads of stuff um and making pennies on the pound if I can sell a drum of something that's specialty oriented, more fun, more interesting, longer term annuity. So
0: higher value. Higher value. So going back to this notion of trust and the the new world of digital,
2: hmm.
0: how do you see that playing out? when the old shake the hand the i've known you for 20 years i should i i I embraced you at your wedding you know let's say the old-fashioned old-school type of thought i played golf with you i know that you always cheat when you're on the 16th hole how
1: does
0: it how do you play that out in a way that you sustain in a sustainable manner trust because that's really the issue there the sustainability of your business in the term that you were using yeah. Relies on the sustainability of that trust.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't have a good answer for that. I can't think about I'm or imagine uh, a year from now what has replaced the golf game to be building those, um, you know, those communities and those relationships. I do think um, it can happen. Maybe it takes more time, and this doesn't quite answer your question, but I think we've all seen it—the pandemic. All of a sudden, people are much more accessible than they ever used to be. So my ability to have a conversation or a Zoom call with a CEO that I might only have seen on the golf course, and it took us forever to like figure out that meeting, now I can have it much sooner. So it doesn't, I don't think it answers your question about trust. It's a really good one. Um, it's,
0: it's a hard one. I mean, you know, like telling me how to be trustworthy. Well, that's also pretty abstract as well. In um in looking at the well, let's say the role, of, the role of leadership with a family, seventh generation, hopefully coming along. I, I was wondering also if you could comment on your experience in hockey as as it pertains to your leadership style and what you brought into that. And, and are there other sports that you would also think that would be useful for that? But specifically with your experience, Molly, uh, as a woman, very competitive. I've seen it, I've experienced it. Um, what has it brought to you in your leadership?
1: Well, firstly, it's only ice hockey that counts. So you can just take all ah. the other sports off, forget about squash, forget about soccer. It's only hockey that matters. Um. Well, you
0: know, you know I'm a, a reasonably large fan of an yeah. NHL team down the pike. My roommate at university was captain of the university hockey team. Two of his players played the NHL. So I, I'm definitely invested in hockey. So I'm dying to hear what you have to say yeah. about some ice hockey.
1: Um, gosh, there's so much to say. I think um, it, the ethos of hockey is very interesting to me. And and so, for example, if I go out and play pickup hockey now and play with it's usually a bunch of men, right? <laughs> I get my own locker room because I'm the only girl there, and people unspokenly. Play at the right level. So if you've got, if I'm going up against an 18 year old guy, he's not gonna a check or yeah, just or try to humiliate me. So I think there's um, and I've seen that in the hockey players I've met. Pretty down to earth, straightforward, no bullshit. You know, you go out, get the job done, work as a team because you can't get anything done on the ice by yourself. And that ethos um, is something I really admire, and I think translates into how you lead a business too, right? Just be who you are, get stuff done. At, got- at the
0: level of the person you're yeah, with. Right. Because de- deking out and making you look like an arsehole right. actually makes you look like an arsehole. I wanted to give you a little story that you make me remind me of, which is when I was um, running the division uh, up in L'Oreal, Canada. So Canadians are reasonably good at hockey.
1: Right. Way <laughs> taken.
0: And they yet invited out this numskull to come right. out who... I know how to skate backwards, right? not quite the way you're supposed to. Um, and uh, generally speaking, I'm stuffed in gold, but you're supposed to know how to skate when you're in gold. But anyway, they had me out and I, and I had this extraordinary, I'd played five times for L'Oreal's team. And I, I have this one recollection where we had some people who were ex- sort of whla ahl kind of players and so these guys they really and, and women they knew what they were playing mm-hmm. and um i mean it was mostly guys but i remember this one time they're in the corner they're like three on the uh, of our players were were scrambling the forwards were scrambling and um while i was playing forward but three of our players were in the corners fighting out with the, the defensemen and there i was left alone and the, and I hadn't barely done anything. And anyway, they fussed and fought, and then one guy looks up, and he saw me, scoops backhand, and just feathers the pass right in my way for me to do the slap shot.
1: Yeah.
0: And I, I was like, this is it. This is my, you know, Gretzky moment. And I just wind up, and sh- and I do this wonderful, if I were doing ballet, it would have been a pirouette. Um, and the puck just continued on its merry way past me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that and, that, yes. <laughs> oh
0: God. yeah and i end up on my ass um Great. and so of course there's one side of me saying well i'm the boss so that's why they're going to be nice to me but not at all they they got me up you know hey Mitchell, you can do it again and a little bit later in the match i got another chance and they still passed it to me yeah. and it turns out i scored but the the point was that they they, they were at my level and right. they encouraged me at my yeah. level not because i was the boss because right. they certainly didn't give me any quarter in other times. Right. You know, when I'm crossing, fighting, I'm in the corner, they're pushing me like right. like you do. Right. And uh, anyway, I think that's a great credit to the, the ice hockey culture and the Canadians yeah. in particular, because all they wanted me to do was to love hockey.
1: Right, right. And who, who, yeah, on the ice, who doesn't love the game? And it's fun when you are in an environment where everybody just wants to be there, is making it happen and loves it. And so again, how do you take that into the, um, back into the business. And I, you know, I went, I started, I played in college, played as an adult. um, And then I started coaching my, my girls, my twins. So I started a girls program. And it was an interesting parallel for me. I mean, I was still skating, but to come off the ice and become a coach, it sort of paralleled my journey as CEO. Like you can't be on the ice anymore, right? You've got to be thinking about a plan, you got to be coming up with a strategy and then trusting your team to execute, right? You can tell them everything, but I never believed in as a coach yelling from the bench because they're not going to hear it. They either know, you know, they're either well-trained to know what they're supposed to do or they don't. And um, I remember like it was U12 girls hockey. We were going to the finals, right? So this is my high point, probably as a person right up there. You know, I, I had coached these girls who couldn't even skate and we're going to the finals. And one of my two daughters in the back said, you know, mom, It must be really hard to be a coach because you have no impact on the game. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) I got you here. But it was she's right, right? I mean, at that point, once we get there, and uh, so great point in leadership, right? And then the other thing I love about hockey even now is so that was a humbling moment. And for me now the humility is yeah, I was I had one of those fanning on the puck moments and I'm not particularly good hockey player. My My intentions really are much better than my execution, and so from I can go from five days in in the office where everybody tells me how smart I am and how funny I am and they laugh at my jokes, and then, man, am I embarrassed when I get on the ice and fan on a puck or fall down, and so it's a great, great counterbalance for me right now
0: yeah you know, in my in my new book, I have this thing called the check framework and, uh, and and for leaders and the H in the Czech stands for humility. and it's 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 remarkable how that doesn't happen and, and it's kind of programmed not to happen as the boss you're you always everyone's laughing at your jokes, everyone thinks you're smart and and it's just sort of a, the natural way we have programmed society. so you have to be ultra careful to bring it back in.
1: Yeah, and I have learned that in a family business, right? So I've done everything here. I'm looking at my warehouse, I can drive the forklift, I'll shovel the walk if you know people aren't here and then yesterday, (laughs) in our our corporate headquarters, I was sitting in my office looking out and there's this like stack of toilet paper that's been there for three days. I'm like, why won't somebody take care of it and then I realized, well, you know, I guess I'll just go take care of it (laughs) and, and could have called somebody to do it but I don't know. It just made me think about all the little things that go into making the business work and mm. every job has meaning and purpose. And so, yeah, I restacked the toilet paper and used my lean principles. So I got some business stuff in there, but <laughs> was...
0: that's smart. So Molly just finish um, a book, a mentor, someone you've inspires you how anyone you would like to share with us or give some kudos to uh, before we sign off with uh, your own credentials.
1: I'll give you two. One was a woman, she's on our board now. My father made her my mentor early on, and she was the person always in my corner saying, you can do it. And you can, whatever vision you have for the company, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. So that relentless cheerleader um, who um, pushed me at times, you know, when when I didn't see it. And the other one is my father. So as I said, he died almost exactly a year ago, and I would not, if he'd asked me a year ago, was he a mentor? No, because I was pushing against much of his beliefs and his tennis. And I'm trying to remake the company. And now I think, um, wow, you know, God damn it, he was right, you know? And so it's good to have a lot of cash. When into the pandemic, I wasn't worried about not being able to make payroll. Um, this notion of sometimes making a decision, like disagreed with him when he told me, like you gotta make a decision quickly, right? That's my approach it's okay to take a night to think about this big decision Some he said some of my biggest regrets have been saying yes when i should have thought about it more quickly and then the way he led he didn't say anything but he led with humility um he led with kindness um and his word is gold and so this notion of trust right I just someone just mm-hmm. told me this yesterday Minter, that when he was coming to the u.s 20 years ago from a british company called canon they said well if you want to do business on a handshake with anyone in the United States, call Chuck Kellogg. So that mm-hmm. is uh, my dad, right? So that's, that uh, was a very powerful lesson to me that I didn't know I was getting at the time from him. This is, know, yeah, be who you are. Um, and I think he also inspired for me this notion of what our duty is to the people who work for us. And, and mm-hmm. I remember going through the parking lot 10 years ago and he said, Oh, Dave bought a new car. I'm like, yeah, well, so Dave bought a new car. And it made him really happy to see that Dave bought a new car because he had a good living and could take that risk. Didn't understand it at the time. But now I feel like that's my 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 job is to make sure that Dave can buy a new car next year.
0: <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah. So I know that you guys like staying old-fashioned, but how would you, if someone is listening to this and wanted to get in touch or find out more about Hubbard Hall, what um, probably digital way would you – uh, recommend for people?
1: Well, Hubbard Hall, so clearly our website, hubbardhall.com, and then LinkedIn is how I'm making most of my newer connections, although not all of them, but those are the, the best two ways. And then there's the old fashioned way. I um, can get a phone call and I'll pick it up. It's another lesson I learned from my father. He answered his phone, gave anybody 30 seconds, and uh, um, yeah. if, if they didn't convince him, the phone went down and otherwise the conversation
0: went on beautiful molly you are a wonderful inspiration it's great to have your trueness come through and uh lovely some wonderful words and and uh i and good wisdom so thanks for coming on molly uh talk to you soon Um, can't wait to hug you in real life again i know
1: thank you so much
0: thanks for having listened to this recording of the minta dialogue show You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on Minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.